I want you to remember that we are flawless in the words that I'm about to share with you. We begin with words from Tim Chester, who wrote A Meal with Jesus. You're at a dinner party. The host is a respectable church leader and local councilman. He lives in a big house on the posh side of town. Tonight, the dinner party is in honor of a visiting speaker. You're glad to have been invited because there's been a lot of talk about this man. He's been causing something of a stir with his radical views. Some people won't have anything to do with him. But you've got an open mind. It's good to have an opportunity to find out what he's really like. You hear the doorbell, think nothing of it, until a woman pushes her way into the room. You see the despairing face of the host's wife. This new arrival is wearing a tight-fitting, low-cut blouse, a skirt that's way too short, and stiletto shoes. She's painted up to the nines and totters slightly as she walks. She's probably had one drink too many. She looks like the sort of woman who stands on street corners. She goes straight to the visiting speaker and throws her arms around him, clasping his head to, her head to his bosom. His head to her bosom, excuse me. I'll always be yours, you hear her mumble. She begins to massage his shoulders. It's then that you notice she's crying, her mascara streaking down her cheeks. Everyone in the room seems to freeze. What a thing for a respectable person to have to endure. You feel for him. How embarrassing. But instead of pushing her away, he reaches up and puts his arms around her. He says something that sounds like, and you're mine. But he can't have said that. It's obvious what kind of woman this is. He can surely see that for himself. He ought to show some discernment. She might think it's a come on. Maybe it is. Maybe he's one of her customers. This visiting speaker clearly has big problems. This is where we begin. A few weeks ago, I was at a Swain football game, engaged with my friends that were sitting on my right, and I had noticed that a young lady that I had watched grow up here sat down immediately to my left. So we shared a surprise, so good to see you, and she burst out, I love your glasses. For some reason, I went on to tell her that I got them from an online store named Warby Parker, and again was surprised that she had also worked with that company. In our conversation, I realized that she, like me, has a thing for glasses and notices them. You know, glasses are just lenses that change our view. Hopefully, they bring clarity and ease. For the next few minutes, I need you to become a glasses person. I want us to pay attention to the lenses through which we view everything. Could it even be time for us to shop for new glasses? If this church was a cruise ship sailing in the ocean of culture, and we were much like the, the traditional church of the last few decades, we would see many others sailing in our same direction, staying somewhat aloof from the wear and tear of the sea and the salt breakers, disengaging when storm and trouble tried to immerse us. We would just keep sailing like minds resisting the call to engaging with the tumult of the sea. 
but it seems to me that God will not leave us alone. He appears to be beckoning us to abandon the course of tradition, jump in a little lifeboat that he is guiding where he wants it to go, where we're sure to get wet and God only knows what else we'll encounter. That's where I see this church at this moment in time. Vulnerable, open to jumping into what God really means when when he invites us to take Christ to the world. My age, I'm sort of the mind and generation to say, God help us, because I don't know what that looks like. I mean, we're still speechless at the dinner party. This lady appears for all intents and purposes to be a prostitute. She disregarded all convention, made herself a fool. A fool for love. Our cruise ship of propriety would never hear of such. We would properly listen to the speaker, think for ourselves how we feel, engage with other like minds over coffee in the days to come, and that would be that. Our cruise ship would continue to sail, somewhat aloof, safe, and protected. Can I just suggest to you, after being here more than 20 years, prepare to abandon ship. I think God is about to dump us into the sea of culture to see how he radically loves, radically changes, and radically couldn't care less about our station and our churchy way of life. Take a moment and picture yourself at that dinner party. You're watching the visitor, and you turn to a guest on either side of you, and you say... Now turn to the person on either side of you and try to be honest about what you would say. (laughs) Everyone's going, I don't want to say that. I'm indignant. Can you believe it? What is he thinking? What on earth must that poor Pharisee be thinking? I met a precious family of four. Actually, three, soon to be four, recently. Who are you picturing? I recently met a family of three, soon to be four. Whom are you picturing? A married dad, a mom, a child, and one on the way. We see life through our lens of respectability and wish it could just be that way, stay that way, like our cruise ship, moving under the power of our personal perception, undisturbed, by that pesky power of Jesus. The mom of this precious family said to me, I wish we could come to church. Here she stood, unmarried mother of two lovely teenage daughters, the older teenager, also unmarried, expecting a baby within weeks. Family of three, soon to be four. Not our picture of respectability. My heart broke right there in the parking lot because I realized how they, much, how they must go through each day, hunkered down with each other, wishing they could be accepted on ours or any other cruise ship. Our lens is not the lens of Jesus. We're going to look at another dinner party, this one in Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus over for a meal. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down at the dinner table. Just then, a woman of the village, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, 
came with a bottle of very expensive perfume, stood at his feet weeping, raining tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was the prophet I thought he was, he would have known what kind of woman this is who's falling all over him. How can we understand that we are that woman? Our sin is every bit as black as hers. We are no different. And in fact, right now in the story, that woman is ahead of us because she understands who Jesus is and what he asks of us. Here's her secret. She's let down her defenses. She viewed her sin clearly through the lens of, I need a Savior. And somehow she decided to carry her rejection and her scarlet letter and her humiliation and all the rest of her story and run into the arms of Jesus, believing that he would somehow receive her. Oh my goodness. Do any of us in this room have that kind of nerve, that kind of abandonment, that kind of trust? To look completely foolish, risk more rejection and utter humiliation. That's what she risked in front of all the people watching. To run right to Jesus. Do we understand that it is a completely different kind of mentality that would get us to the sacred space of anointing the very feet of Jesus. Last night was Halloween. I'm sure some kid somewhere dressed as Dracula. I've dressed as him for years. By that I mean I've dressed in a Dracula of labeling mentality. Growing up in the church somehow gave me license to love the sinner and hate the sin, which I was taught to rehearse often in my head. As Jody so expressively told us a few weeks ago, the Bible doesn't say that. I could name the sins the Bible identifies much more quickly than I could tell you the fruit of the Spirit or the pieces of armor that constitute the armor of God. Some of you have heard this before. In my 30s, it started nagging me that I didn't know much about Abraham or David or Saul that must have become Paul. I just didn't know the stories. I knew the listed sins, but I didn't know the stories. So as perhaps you have heard me say before, I bought a children's Bible storybook, fifth grade level. I was a reader and a reading teacher, and I was too intimidated to start with a real Bible. But here's what I didn't see coming. The time I spent reading was followed by time pondering. The more I pondered God, the more I wanted to ponder God. Now, people who know me well will agree that I kind of miss half of life, or I should probably correct that and say I miss half of culture. Like, I can't tell you the top five Taylor Swift songs, even though I think she's wonderful. I do know who Orby Parker is, and now you do, and I bet you didn't. But you probably know a lot more about culture than I do. Because I take this pondering thing of God to an extreme. So much of the time when I look like I'm walking around engaged with something else, I'm really wondering and pondering and trying to figure out the whole thing. And here's what happened. It started bothering me that we have something wrong. 
When you ponder God, you meet up with the Holy Spirit. He's the part of the triune God, the part of God that speaks to our spirit so that we're in communion with the living God and we can know how he wants to partner with us. It's this inner experience, just you and the Holy Spirit. It's this inner experience with God that charts our course and as importantly, corrects our course. You meet the deep me that you were long ago created to be. Some of us never meet the deep me. So I moved to reading the whole Bible year after year, slept through a lot, I'll have to do, especially the Old Testament. Um, but little by little, I was gathering this larger picture of God. My Protestant upbringing did not serve me well in giving me a larger picture of God. The more complete picture, coupled with that pondering time, pointed me to a new compass. The evangelical church has gotten it wrong when its compass has pointed mainly to sin. God's compass, his true north, is love. Every time we review, uh, I'm sorry, every time we view our respectability as somehow better than the dinner party visitor who was in that sacred space with Jesus, we hop back on the cruise ship, we go behind the wall of our defenses, we put a band-aid on our own sin, and we just let it continue to exist side by side with our arm's length Jesus. But we should confess, am I saying that we should lay aside propriety and respectability? Absolutely not. But we should confess our worship of it, our defense of it, our exclusivity that results from it. Any angle of it that keeps us separated from the complete surrender to love. But let's come at this from another direction. Let's take anxiety. How many of you have ever experienced anxiety? Recently in my pondering, this has never occurred to me, it occurred to me to confess anxiety as sin. If all of y'all already knew that, I, I missed it. I spent a few indignant moments arguing with the Holy Spirit because how can I help my anxiety? It comes from the outside or it comes from my circumstances. Surely it's not my fault. But as usual, I lost the argument, but won this amazing understanding. I posted this on Facebook. What if we consider anxiety as an affront to God? Then every time a wave of anxiety hits us, we confess it to God and ask forgiveness. Could it be that doing that for wave after wave, we would make room for real power and energy to take its place? Seems like God would like to be a part of that. So a good friend replied on Facebook, I like the idea of that, but as someone who has struggled with anxiety, feeling guilty about not trusting God enough also leaves me feeling bad. She hit the nail on the head. We are told to trust God, but what does that even mean, and how do we get there? We don't need to feel guilty about not trusting God. We need to figure out how to make room for it so that it grows. We can't make room for trust unless we confess our anxiety as an affront to God. When we do that, guess what's going to happen? More anxiety is going to hit you. Because the enemy of God was enjoying front and center in your life by hosting your anxiety. I told my friend maybe we could view this confession 
like exercise. We're told exercise is good for us, but we use every excuse to put it off. Maybe we just try it. You'll never start your exercise program unless you just try it. Same way with confessing anxiety. We find exercise is good, changes us for the better. We may find confessing anxiety every time it hits us would make room for more of God's power to be front and center in our minds and hearts, changing us for the better. So remember the lifeboat? Our cruise ship has predictable power that gives us confidence that we can power through the ocean without getting wet. Wet with other people's messes. Wet by looking at our own blackness and fallenness and finding the sweet trade-in. The sweet trade-in is true brokenness. What does a dinner party lady dressed in everything but respectability have that we may not have? She's thrown caution to the winds, has met her sin head-on, and has run, not walked, into the arms of Jesus. And how is she remembered in heaven and in history? She is the one who was given the honor by the living God to anoint Jesus for his coming burial. Ponder that for a moment. Jesus was anointed for burial. Only one person in history got to do this by a prostitute. Is God condoning prostitution? Absolutely not. He is forgiving prostitution, freeing her from cruise ship condemnation. My generation, very few of you are in here, <laughs> my generation on the cruise ship has not gotten this right. One author has tried to change that. We saw his video last week. Richard Rohr says it like this. Christianity rarely emphasized the importance, the plausibility, or the power of finding the inner me. For Catholics, you are to believe the Pope, the bishops, and the priests. For Protestants, you are to believe the Bible. Hold on. Don't let that upset you. We are to believe the Bible. But they're both the same game. It's about trusting something that is outside of yourself. So it's not the complete picture. When this is encouraged, there is little deep conviction or passion, but only hard-headed and often arrogant belief, which then feels like a game of pretend, both to the believer and those who observe such people. We give people answers that are in, extrinsic to our soul. We, we, don't, we don't feel things from the inside out. We just yank it from the Bible and throw it on somebody. Holiness largely became a matter of intellect and will instead of an inner trust and inner dialogue of love. It made you think that the one with the most willpower wins and the one who understands things the best is the beloved of God. But guess what? That is the opposite of most biblical heroes. It kept, it kept us gazing at our own performance instead of searching for the divine in us and in all things. Jesus is simply not who we think he is. So, who is he? Who lets a prostitute anoint his feet and wreck our cruise ship of respectability? 
Paul, when he was known as Saul, thought he knew the ins and outs of God, and he sailed the best cruise ship of religion in his day. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, who threw everything upside down for him when he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It would be like us hearing God's voice over our cruise ship loudspeaker right now. <laughs> and if we do, I'll be fall down. Church, church, why are you making this about you instead of me? I am not on your cruise ship of respectability at arm's length from culture. I am powering the lifeboat. Jump aboard. Trust my way. Paul says it like this in Philippians. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We cannot carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, says Paul, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church. A meticulous observer of everything set down, set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash. I don't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules. When I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. Follow the law, you get Saul. Follow Jesus, you get Paul. We might even say he was converted from prostitution as well. Because he had prostituted the love of Jesus with the exclusivity of the law. Are we prostitutes? Are we this or that? Does it matter? If we want to enter the sacred space of anointing the feet of Jesus, we need new glasses. When we put on the glasses that see Jesus clearly, this phrase will come into view. I am no different. That phrase runs around in my head these days. Every time I catch myself back on the perch of the cruise ship, looking down at the ocean of culture, now you know why I don't know the top five songs of Taylor Swift. I can't stop thinking about how my generation has prostituted Jesus. And more than anything, I want to help a church vastly full of mostly younger people onto the lifeboat that is powered by the real Jesus. I have no idea what it'll look like in the days ahead here. Eating together on the lifeboat will probably have quite a different feel than the comfort of the churchy cruise ship. But the food will probably heal us and free us and help us find our true selves. Paul gives us this advice in Romans 2. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life. Place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your cruise ship that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed right here 
from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Then unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out in you and develops a well-formed maturity in you. Life on the cruise ship has a very dark side. Richard Rohr, again, has worked with people all over the world, and he says, We are finding it almost impossible to heal isolated individuals inside of an unhealthy and unhealed culture and inside of a Christianity that is largely about exclusion and superiority. The individual remains inside of an incoherent and unsafe universe and quickly falls back into anger, fear, and narcissism. I sadly say this after 46 years of giving retreats, conferences, and initiation rites all over the world. Only those who went on to find a contemplative mind and develop it had the skills to finally grow and profit from the message they had heard. For others, just another consumer experience for their spiritual resume. The contemplative mind. I hope that it's what I'm developing. I want the real Jesus. I want to crash the dinner party in my sin outfit. And I want to run to Jesus in tears because I know he'll receive me. I want to jump on the lifeboat where God only knows what is about to happen. Our respectability then will be our fellow sinnership, not our cruise ship. I am no different. And who will be powering our tiny lifeboat? Here's God's promise. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Jesus Christ. Saving is all his idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift, start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do and work we had better be doing. The lady visitor who came to the table didn't take credit for anything except that she was in need of Jesus. Owning her brokenness gave her the honor of entering the sacred space. If you don't hear anything else, let me just say that again. Owning her brokenness gave her the honor of entering the sacred space. Out of the arms of Jesus flowed the love that would change her, freeing her to find whom she was created to be. We can't give this love to others until we own our own brokenness and run as prostitutes into the arms of Jesus. If you're offended by those words, it may simply mean that you still grade sin and yours is somehow less offensive to God. It is not less offensive to God. Remember, we have fellow sinnership on our lifeboat. But the beauty of all this is that the lifeboat 
is for both of us, all of us. If you'll join me in prayer. Lord, please forgive our every color of sin. Let the color in our life be our new glasses, for we see our own brokenness as equal to that of every other precious soul. Help us understand that we can run together into the sacred space on the lifeboat, where your power and only your power will be our soul's very breath. Thank you for freeing us from the cruise ship of respectability. We are yours. If the band would come back. When the band completes this set, you'll be free to go. Again, if you're offended, I hope that you find your way to understanding that we're really all essentially prostitutes in the manner of our sin, but we can be free and become that inner person by running into the arms of Jesus, letting down our defenses, and jumping onto that lifeboat. I don't know what God has for this church. It is scary. <laughs> but he wants us to do it differently. He wants us to jump off the cruise ship that, that church has been in the past and see what he has for us when we genuinely love ourselves, develop ourselves with him, and move out into the world. Thank you.